Isaiah, the chapter 59, the Redeemer of Zion is the subject of the message tonight, a subject given to me, part of a series that is being studied during this year of meetings. As you turn to that 59th chapter of Isaiah, let me say it's a joy for me to once more have the opportunity of fellowshipping with you. We love the study of prophecy. The Lord gave us a love of this particular aspect of divine truth a long time ago. I suppose under God I would owe much of that love to my brother-in-law with whom I held many, many discussions uh, just after I was converted. He wasn't, of course, then my brother-in-law. I think it would have horrified him if he had known that that lay up in the future. But anyway, he survived. I'm talking about Dr. John Douglas. Many of you, I'm sure, will have enjoyed his ministry here. We used to talk into the wee small hours of the morning on this blessed subject. And he did the most of the talking. I did the listening. And we rejoice in the delight that God granted to us in this wonderful subject of prophecy. I always liken these meetings onto a gathering of folk like unto Simeon that you read about in the Gospel of Luke. Do you remember old Simeon? He had been given a promise by God that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Christ. And he lived in this expectation of seeing the Redeemer. Now, we don't quite share uh, such a revelation as he shared, but nevertheless, I believe that our reading of the Scriptures would lead us to believe that the coming of the Lord draweth very near indeed. The signs are there. The signs are there. We'll not go into the signs uh, that are there, but I think that if you know anything of studies that have been conducted over the years under the auspices of the Sovereign Grace Advent Testimony, you know well of the evidences that have been repeatedly set forth that indicate that the, the coming of Christ is drawing near. Mr. Tom's very kindly mentioned the book that we put together based on a series of sermons that I preached. Not quite a verse-by-verse exposition of, of Revelation, but close to it. And I preached it in my church. And I also, many years later, uh, used it as a basis of studies in uh, our school, our Christian school, um, in the assemblies that I conducted there. And if this book is difficult, that would be the wrong place to take it. Because the assembly was made up of children just starting school. They're in their first year, right up to A-level students. But I never found any difficulty in applying the book of the Revelation to the very first year. Kids, right up through. Never had any difficulty. And I I think I can say I never had any difficulty maintaining their interest uh, during our studies. It's not a hard book. It's not a hard book. 
the devil stands at the entrance to the book and anybody who looks in the direction of the book of Revelation, he says, don't even bother thinking about it. It's a hard book. Couldn't understand it. Don't bother even thinking about it. It's a book of difficulties, full of all sorts of mysteries. You'll never understand it. It's not for you. That's the devil. That's the devil talking. Now, if the devil stands trying to keep you away from the book, you can be sure there's something very good for your soul in it. And this is the last book of the Bible. So it's, it's Christ's last word to his church. Is that not a, a particularly precious thing? The last word of the Lord to his people? Is that not something of particular value? And it is a book. And I'm not saying buy my book. I'm not even saying study my book. I'm saying study the book of Revelation. That's what I'm saying. And you will, you will enjoy it. And you will discover that it's a falsehood. Uh, when it is stated that it's a difficult book. Now tonight we're turning to this uh, chapter 59 of Isaiah and the verse 20. Let's read that verse please. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob saith the Lord. Lovely, lovely verse, upon the surface of which there sits statements that are not in the least hard to understand. The Lord tells us here because the verse ends with the statement, saith the Lord. This is his word. And he tells us that the Redeemer shall come to Zion. And unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob. Now whenever you come to the study of God's word, I suppose we're tempted ever to reach for something that men have already written or said about the passage we're considering. There's no harm in that. Provided, of course, that you're looking at the comments of good men. There's no harm in that. But I think that when we study God's word, it is best always first to consult what the word of God has to say about the passage that you are seeking to understand. Because remember this, the Bible is also its own best commentary. It does provide a commentary. We are to understand Scripture by Scripture, through Scripture. We, we come to understand what the Scripture says in one place by looking at what it says about the same subject matter in the rest of the Bible. Now, this verse here has a commentary upon it contained in the Bible. Paul the Apostle commented on this verse. And surely the best place to start any study of the verse 21 or verse 20 of chapter 59 of Isaiah would be what the great Apostle had to say about this very verse. And you only have to turn over to Romans. Romans chapter 11 and there you will come on Paul's commentary on this 
particular verse. Romans chapter 11. Now, in chapter 11, Paul is speaking about Israel, the nation of Israel, the nation of which he was a member. That's what he's talking about in Romans chapter 11. Look at verse 1. He says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. So he's talking about the future of the people of Israel of which he was a member. That's the topic that he's dealing with here in this chapter 11. It it is a chapter, or it is a subject I should say, that is the casting away of Israel that uh, provides many with the, the subject matter of much controversy. There have been many an argument over whether or not God has cast away Israel. Well, Paul settles it for us here. God hath not cast away his people. That is, cast them away forever. Cast them away, uh, uh, never to embrace them again. Paul says that is not the case. And then he comes to the uh, portion that I want us to look at or makes the statements uh, in this chapter 11 and the verse 25 that I want us to look at for it is a commentary on the text that is before us. Let's read verse 25 of Isaiah of, of uh, Romans chapter 11. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. Paul is saying here, in pursuing this subject matter, hath God cast away his people? No, he hasn't, he says. No, he hasn't. But rather, as it is said in the scripture, the Lord one day is going to restore Israel. Or as we have it uh, stated there, in the verse 26, So all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. So our text is all about God one day saving Israel. Don't take my word for it. Take Paul's. That's what Paul says. God shall one day save all Israel as it is written. The there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. It's interesting to notice that in, in speaking on this subject here and just before he quotes 
Isaiah chapter 59 and the verse 20. Paul says, verse 25, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit. Ignorance, conceit, and those two words are linked with many of the views that are associated with God's purpose for Israel. Ignorance. There are many people who scoff at the idea. Many believers, good believers, don't don't think I'm saying that they're not. Many good people scoff at the idea that God will one day save the Jewish people. And, And in a conceited fashion, they then expound views and notions of their own that are quite contrary to the scripture. But then that always happens, men and women, when we are ignorant of God's truth and we begin then to speak in ignorance, nothing but conceit and pride can come out of our hearts and mouths. So let's humbly approach this subject this evening uh, in the light not only of what is said in our text, but in the light of that commentary which has been provided for us by the Holy Ghost through the pen of the Apostle Paul, plain teaching indeed is here set before us. Plain teaching. We don't have to speculate on the matter of what God's purpose is for Israel. It's stated for us. Stated for us plainly. The present state of blindness that the Jewish people are in, spiritual state of blindness that they're in, will end one day. We'll end one day. The word blindness, uh, used by the Apostle Paul, it, it refers to the covering of the eyes by a callus. A callus, those are those little hard patches of, of skin that form on your hand or anywhere else where you're involved in some hard work. You're your skin produces these hard layers to protect itself. That's why if you start into the garden uh, and you're not used to it, it's not be long until you have blisters on your hands. Uh, but if you patiently bear with the blisters, where there were blisters, there will come calluses, hardened skin that will be able to bear with the labor that you uh, are involving yourself in as you use the garden implements, the old spade in particular. The skin hardens. That's the word. That's the word. The blindness of Israel. It's like a callous. A hardening of the heart. A thickening of the heart. So that there's a resistance. It's hard to penetrate it. It's hard to get through it. It's insensitive. It doesn't feel the truth of God. That's the state that Israel is in in the present day. The same Greek word that is translated blindness uh, there in in Romans is used in Mark chapter three in the verse five. But there it's it's translated by hardness, referring to the wickedness of the uh, oppos- uh, the opponents of the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of their opposition to Him. They they were they were wickedly opposed to Him. There was a hardness. That's the hardness that presently is upon the hearts of the people of Israel. Now, 
Such is the state in which they will remain, Paul says, until the fulfilling of the verse that we are looking at tonight as our text. That's the state they will continue with. Until the Redeemer shall come to Zion. And unto them that return from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. In our text in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20, I want us first of all to consider the what is suggested uh, here on the very surface of the text. The Redeemer shall come to Zion. He's been away from Zion. He's been absent from Zion. He has been separated from his people. I asked the chairman tonight if he would read from Isaiah or from Matthew, the uh, chapter twenty-one, and that parable of the vineyard, for it sets forth the period that, through which we are living at the present time. The owner of the vineyard sets it out to laborers, and then he departs and leaves, and later on he comes back expecting to see the fruits of the vineyard presented to him. The Lord has been away from Zion. He has been separated from Zion. And during that period of separation, as you will have noted in the, in the parable, there was rebellion amongst the, the laborers and servants. A defying of the owner and his will and his purpose, and his plan. And they just did what they liked. And those that were sent unto uh, the workers in the vineyard, requiring the fruits and the harvest of the vineyard, they were abused, they were rejected, they were chased. The authority with which they came was rejected by the workers. They didn't uh, in any way Embrace the authority of the one in whose name they kept. He even sent his son, saying, they'll reverence my son, surely. They mightn't have reverenced my servants. They mightn't have given due respect to them, but they'll reverence my son, surely. But when he came, they slew him. They slew him. And you have in a nutshell there, uh, really, the, the history of Israel. You have the, the, the spirit of rebellion that uh, manifested itself at Calvary. And then the judgment that fell upon the Jewish nation as a result of their rejecting of the authority of God and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Zion, Israel, Jerusalem. The nation of the Jew is presently separated from the Redeemer. This chapter 59, I would have found it very profitable if we had indeed, as was originally scheduled, uh, if we had read this chapter, because it's all about the state of Israel in its separation from God. What Israel is in tonight by way of separation from God, we saw 
foreshadowings of it on many occasions during the long history of Israel. There were so many times when Israel went against God, departed from God, and and were in a state of rebellion, and suffered the consequences. Though the difference is that in those times of rebellion, God in his mercy drew them back again, drew them back again, caused them to heed his prophets, and they were restored. Once again, and you, you, the Bible's full, the Old Testament's full of those occasions when there was repentance wrought and Israel once again was in subjection to the Lord and continued with him in fellowship, in submission for a time. Then rebellion rose up again, and that happens so often. That happens so often. But when they rejected the Lord Jesus some 2,000 years ago, that marked a degree of rebellion that surpassed all the other rebellions that Israel ever had engaged in. And that marked an entering into a period of separation from God that has endured those 2,000 years that have intervened in this world's affairs since the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. But here in Isaiah, you see, there is a period of this rebellion. And the beginning of the uh, chapter 59 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot see him, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. At the very time that Isaiah was writing, there was in Israel one of these periods of separation from God as a result of sin. A foreshadowing, as it were, of the period that now exists. Now exists in that relationship between Israel and and God. Your iniquities have separated between you and God. Sin always stands between a people and God. That's always the result. That is the only result that follows sin. It brings separation from God. It comes up, brings about a breach in that relationship with God. God says here in, in this uh, verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 59, he says, I haven't changed. The Lord's hand is not shortened. I haven't suddenly developed some disability so that I am not able to do for my people that which I have done for them in the past. It's not that my ear has become heavy. I've developed deafness so that I can't hear as once I heard. No, that's not what has brought about the situation that presently exists, says God through Isaiah. What has brought this about is your sin. That's what has robbed you of the strength of my arm, of the hearing of your prayers by me. That's what has robbed you. Not that I have undergone some change. Your sins have separated between you and God. Listen to me, Christian. We ought to fear sin. 
We ought to fear sin. I often read in the press of the panic that ensues when there's a reported case of something like meningitis in children. Mothers in that district are panic stricken. Lest their child catch this disease. Lest their child catch this disease. And rightly so. But I want to tell you this. The aftermath of meningitis is nothing compared to the aftermath of sin. And the consequences of sin. Sin ought to be dreaded. It is for that reason you find in the Bible. God shouting out to his people. Flee from sin. Depart from sin at all costs. Because the consequences of it are dreadful. Here's the consequences of sin. The last 2,000 years of the dreadful history of the poor Jew is a, 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 a commentary, a living parable of the consequences of sin. Zion is not enjoying the benefits of her Redeemer at the present time because of sin because of sin it stands between man and God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden it dug hell and it's been filling it ever since here we read that God says in this few verses at the beginning of of the chapter 59 he says I look at you he says I see there's blood on your hands I see there's iniquity in your fingers I see there's lies on your lips I see there's perverseness in your tongues this is what sin does well you know you can't just take sin and hold it between finger and thumb and never let it come any closer than that Oh, how delicately sometimes we, we lift up that sticky bun that we so love. And we don't want it stirred all over our clothes, so we delicately hold it. And, but sin can't be handled like that, my friend. Sin will stain you through and through. Sin will ruin you through and through. It'll take a Solomon, and it'll turn him into an idolater. It'll take a David, and it'll turn him into a murderer and an adulterer. Sin, it'll rob us of God. Sin has robbed the Jew of God. That's what the explanation for the present state of the Jew is all about. You see, <clears throat> there was a day just before Calvary when the representatives of the Jewish nation shouted out in response to Pilate who was the judge on that great trial. His blood be on us and on our children. And God took the matter word. God took the matter word. Some years later, when the apostles were preaching, they <clears throat> were summoned before the authorities in Jerusalem. And the authorities, the leaders said, Did not we straightly that is, give you a very strict, narrow command. Did we not straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You see, what the apostles were preaching was this. 
They were saying to the Jewish rulers, you're guilty of the blood of Jesus. You by wicked hands have crucified him. When Pilate would have let him go, you had him crucified. And his blood is on you. And the rulers recognized that this was what the apostles were saying. (coughs) Paul states the crime of the Jews committed at Calvary in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. He says of them who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. Paul makes it clear that the Jewish people are guilty of the murder of Christ. Now, throughout the ages there have been those who have sought to exonerate the Jew of this crime. Not that long ago that the Pope of Rome made a pronouncement supposedly supposedly on behalf of God that from now on we weren't to think of the Jew as being guilty of the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it may have pleased the Pope to have made that pronouncement but it doesn't change the matter by one iota. The Jew is still guilty of the blood of Christ. Still guilty of the murder of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you this. I say that not because I hate the Jew. I don't. I say that because that's the truth. But then, let us, each one here tonight, recognize that each one who rejects the gospel is guilty of the blood of Jesus. That's the teaching of the Bible. If you're not saved tonight, you too are guilty of the blood of Christ. You're guilty of rejecting the message of salvation and trampling the blood of God's Son under your feet. Counting it as something contemptible. Turning your back. Every time the gospel is preached, you know, Jesus Christ is set on trial again. And you have the opportunity of agreeing with the original verdict brought in by the Jew. Or you can say, no, he was not worthy of death. He was the Son of God. And I believe everything he said about himself. And I know that in his going to the cross, though the Jew is guilty of, 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 of that awful sentence that brought about his death on the cross, nevertheless I know in the providence of God that at the cross, As he was crucified, he bore the sins of his people as a sacrifice and made an atonement for sin. And trusting him, I seek the benefits and the blessings of that atonement. And I'm trusting my all to the work of the cross. No, I don't deem him a usurper as the Jews did. No, I don't deem him a troublemaker as the Jews did. No, I don't deem him a liar as the Jews did. I rather believe that he is Christ, the Son of the living God, and I take him as my Savior. Only those who say that 
escape the consequences of being guilty of the blood, of the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ. Zion then, the Jewish people, is presently separated from the Redeemer because of their sin and their rejection of God's truth. In consequence, Zion is bereft of the Redeemer's help and grace and mercy and power and protection. That's why, and I return to the verse 1 of Isaiah 59, that's why the Lord is explaining to the people in the day of Isaiah, your sins, your rebellion against me, your turning away from me, have cost you my blessing. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that he cannot hear. It may appear that I am so, but this is because of your sin. You've robbed yourself of my benefits and my blessings. And the Jewish nation, for the last 2,000 years or so, have been bereft of those comforts, those privileges that set them apart from all other nations during the period when they were the covenanted people of God. God doesn't hear the prayers of the Jewish nation as he did. God's hand does not reach out to intervene and protect them as it did. But they are now subject to the terrible wrath of men the afflictions of the devil. What a thing it is, this sin. And I repeat and hope and pray that God will impress it upon all our hearts. What a thing sin is that it should so rob men of the succor and the grace and the mercy of Jehovah. Often in my studies of history, I have read of a question that repeatedly has come from the lips of Jewish people and at no time was it ever more uh, frequently repeated than during that period in the Second World War when the Jewish people were so subjected by Hitler's regime to the most cruel of persecution. You will, you will find in Jewish writings the question why does God not hear our prayers? You know, in those trains with all those cattle trucks into which the Jewish people by the thousand were crowded. Many a prayer went up. In those camps, those dreadful camps where the Jewish captives of Nazism suffered, suffered unspeakably. Many a prayer went up, but God never answered them. Why? Because your sins and your iniquities have separated you from God. The sin, the guilt that the Jewish people took on themselves 2,000 years ago so blithely. His blood be on us and on our children. Brought in a terrible curse. And a terrible blight. The psalmist said in Psalm 66 and the verse 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. And if you're saved tonight, let me tell you that's still the case. If I regard 
That's a nice little word for us to examine. If I regard. We use that oftentimes at the end of a letter. Kindest regards. If I regard you, I hold you in esteem. I, I hold you in a special place. In my thoughts and in my affections. If we regard we give a special place to sin in our heart. If there's sin in our lives. Oh, we've made an ounce robbery. we made an ounce adultery. we made an ounce murder. we made an ounce a thousand sins. But there's one sin we regard. We like to savor it. And my secretively, we keep it in our heart. If we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear. The Lord will not hear us. The church today is powerless in many instances. As you know, you don't need me to come and tell you that. Powerlessness is stamped upon the church of God in so many parts of the world, none more obviously than in this United Kingdom. And do you know why it is? Because there's a regarding of sin in the lives of God's people. There's a place given to sin. Worldliness, carnality, it's there. We have embraced things, incorporated ways, practices, fashions, forms into our life from the world that our fathers utterly repudiated. Would have been ashamed to have had anything to do with. But we embrace it. We regard it. We hold it in esteem. We would argue with anyone who would point it out and say you shouldn't be doing that. What do you mean? I'm perfectly intact. There's nothing wrong in doing this. We regard it. And it's costing us God's blessing. Here we are tonight. Sitting in the middle of 10 million people. What percentage do we represent? I don't think I could, could calculate how small is the percentage that you and I represent and there's nobody else and it's the affliction that's, that's, that's seen and felt by God's people everywhere the only way to get people in is get the bond in and the music in and, and, and throw out the standards and the fashions and the patterns that are set down in God's word in fact take God's word and throw it out as well Bring in a fancy new version that, that doesn't really sound like God's word. That's the only way. Why is it? Because we regard iniquity in our heart and God's not hearing our prayers. Another verse. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be an abomination. Proverbs chapter 28 to verse 9. Isaiah chapter 1, the verse 15. When ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. I'm not here. I'm not here. I've been forced to return again and again and again to a little verse. In the book of the Revelation, over the last ten weeks or so that I've been preaching in England, and it's a very well-known verse. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him. 
Now that verse is for Christians, it's not for sinners. It's for Christians. It was written to a Christian church. And it was written to a Christian church that because of sin being embraced by it, Christ was forced out and he's outside the door and he's ringing the bell. (coughs) And he's saying into the intercom, as it were, will you let me in? If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. Sin had put him out of the church. Why is the church so powerless today? Why is the church so miserable in its witness? Why is it backpedaling and retreating? Why is it that Muslimism and every otherism is given precedence and favored and, and, and bowed before and governments tremble in the face of it? But Christianity? Why? That's the butt of everybody's joke. That's the favorite topic of the of the comedian. That's what everybody wants to write a, 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 a satirical play about. Why? God's not amongst us. God's not amongst us because of sin. That's the lesson that we can learn as we look at the Jew. And all the afflictions that he has been through. God not hearing him. The Jew plaintively cried out in the midst of all his sufferings, especially in Hitler's time. Why did God not answer our prayers? They're still asking that question. The the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren of those who died in the Holocaust are asking the question, why did God not answer their prayers? Because of sin. Because of sin. And it's the same for you and for me. John 9, the blind man who was healed said, Now we know that God heareth not sinners. But if any man be a worshipper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Even that blind man, who at that time wasn't even saved, he knew that simple rule. Why is it we don't recognize it today? Why is it Christians have to be persuaded that the reason we're in the state we are in is because of sin? Why is it not self-obvious? You know, if we break out in a sweat and there's a fever, we've lost our appetite, we say, I'm going to the doctor, I'm sick. There's something wrong with me. But when the church is crippling around, paralysis has taken hold upon it, It's powerless. It's helpless. Nobody seems to say, why are we like this? This is not how we ought to be. There are people who ought to be enjoying the blessing and power of God. Why are we in such powerless state? And if we did address that question and apply to God's word for the answer, we would discover the answer is because your sins and your iniquities have separated you from God. Zion is presently under God's wrath. The blindness in part which Paul mentions in Romans 11 has provoked the wrath of God against his ancient people. You remember how it was with the Lord Jesus. Mark chapter 3 and the verse 5 we read these words. And when he had looked round about 
on them with anger. The word means wrath. Every other place virtually that that same Greek word appears that is translated in Mark 3 and 5 as anger, it's translated in our English Bible by the word wrath. When the Lord Jesus looked round, he didn't just look round with a furrowed brow. He looked round in wrath. He looked round in wrath. He was angry. Why? Well, it tells us being grieved with the hardness of their hearts. Where there is a hard heart, a, a rejecting of God's word, wrath is the consequence. And the whole Jewish nation rejects the word of God. They don't, they don't, many of them would even utter the name of Jesus and won't allow you to utter his name. Where there is such hardness, there's wrath. There's wrath. You know, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost, Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 16. He's speaking there of that judgment which would befall the nation in AD 70 when, as you know, Jerusalem as a city was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, and the Jewish nation was so decimated and broken up and sold into slavery that it ceased to be. It ceased to be. That was the, Paul says that was wrath to the uttermost. They had known the wrath of God in judgment, temporal judgment upon them many times during the history in the Old Testament. But finally they sinned so badly that the patience of God, as it were, was exhausted and wrath to the uttermost came on the nation. And so it has been for 2,000 years. Zion is presently under the wrath of God. And it hangs over their head and will continue to hang over their head until, as we read in our text, the Redeemer shall come to Zion. That will mark the end. That will mark the lifting of the present judgment that is upon the nation of of Israel. I must quickly come to uh, 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 the second consideration that I want to set before you from the verse. Consider the Redeemer returning to Zion. We've thought about him being away from Zion and what that means. Now, look at him returning to Zion. it's, It's very adamant here that he will. The Redeemer shall come to Zion. No room for argument here. No room for debate. Let us submit to this simple statement. The Redeemer will most certainly return one day. As I said, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, the verse 25, I make no no apology for asking you to think about what is said there. He says in verse 25, blindness in part. Not every Jew is blind. There has been the salvation of a remnant. It's been my privilege to have known some converted Jews. I think of Mr. Herman Gumar. Maybe some of you here knew. I'm sure Mr. Tom's knew. Lovely wee man. A Jew. And I must confess that whenever I met him, I, I, I used to look at him. I, I, because he's a unique member of a unique people. One of the other that escaped the blindness by the mercy of God. 
But blindness was upon the rest of Israel. Apart from this little remnant, blindness was upon them. It's happened unto, unto Israel, Paul says, Romans 11.25, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. You see, the Redeemer will return to Zion and take up again a wonderful relationship with his ancient people. When? When the fullness of the Gentiles has been gathered. God is currently, presently, gathering a people out of the Gentiles. Luke chapter 21, the verse 24. The Savior is speaking. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. This is the time of the Gentiles. God in his mercy is primarily gathering a people out of the Gentile nations. I, I, I think I'm right in saying we're all Gentiles here tonight. Not one of us. I don't think. I, I apologize if there is someone here who is a converted Jew. Make yourself known to us. Because we love you. Does our Savior belong to your nation? Hate the Jews? How can I hate the Jew? My Savior came from that nation. The Jewish people are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. I couldn't hate the Jewish people. As I say, if you're a Jew tonight, I want to know about it. I want to know about it. But I'm pretty sure that we're all Gentiles here tonight. Because God is saving people out of the Gentile nations at this present time. And that will continue to be the case until the Redeemer comes again to Zion. When Paul the Apostle was converted and he was ordained as a servant of God, we read in Acts chapter 9 where his conversion is recorded and the verse 15 The Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. That was Paul's commission. He was the apostles of the Gentiles primarily. Not that he spoke to Jews. He always made a practice of going into the synagogue first whenever he came to a new town, uh, and then he went to the Gentiles. But he was primarily the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles back in the days of the apostles caused a great controversy at the very first. And when Peter was sent by God to preach to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, and his friends, who were Gentiles, he was interrogated by his Jewish brethren who heard about this. Because it seemed that he had broken the rules. He had a Jew gone in among the Gentiles. That was forbidden. But we read of the matter in Acts chapter 10 and the verse 45. And they of the circumcision, that's the name for the Jews, which believed were astonished. And as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. 
Then in chapter 11 and the verse 18, after the whole matter had been argued about, we read, when they heard these things, that is, the Jewish Christian leaders, heard about the conversion of Cornelius. When they heard these things, they held their peace and they glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. That was the beginning of the gathering in of the Gentiles. The day of Pentecost, when the gospel was preached. In what language? The language of the Gentiles. They all spoke in tongues. Not a babble, as Today, there are those who would say, is speaking in tongues. No, they preached the word of God in the language of the Gentiles. Because the age of the Gentiles had begun. It had come. And the Jew had been set aside. Had been set aside. Now, until that which began at the day of Pentecost has reached its fullness and God's purpose among the Gentiles is fulfilled, he will not return to the Jewish people until the end of that. Then, then as Paul says, when the blindness of Israel will be lifted, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come, when the full measure of the Gentile people have been gathered in savingly to Christ. That time must be drawing near. I believe it. We read in Matthew chapter 24, the verse 14, And the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. You know, tonight, tonight, in a way that has never been so before, the gospel is preached to every nation. Do you know that? Tonight. And that is so because of modern uh, technical advances in communication. By the internet, there's not a nation under the heavens but can listen to the gospel. Now, some of my sermons are up on the internet. Our church, when I was uh, a pastor, the church I was pastor in, uh, Kilskiri, not a very big church by any means, we had... uh, a site on sermon audio. And every month there were uh, a couple of thousand, maybe four thousand, maybe five thousand sermons downloaded across the world. And we used to get a report every month of those sermons. And they went to China. China. Uh, Well, uh, they went everywhere. Into Arab countries, into Russia, into Muslim countries. Everywhere. Where where men as missionaries wouldn't get access in. Where a missionary, were he to arrive at the border post, would not be allowed in. The internet gets in. And the gospel's being preached. Now, I was way down there in the ladder of, of, of prominence uh, on sermon audio. There are many other much, much better known preachers who, who are sending out thousands and thousands of, of sermons and people are, are, are accessing them and looking them up their names are well known so they're looking these names up and they're downloading and there's millions millions of gospel messages being preached across the world across the world every month I had more as I said going into China than I had in England that sort of says something that sort of says something a thousand at one time a thousand 
sermons were downloaded every month from, from my side, a small, small, small side, into China every month. Now, the Saviour says, and the gospel shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. I think that we have in this very fact that I've just set before you, one of the indications, not not the only one by any means, but the one I'm going to set before you tonight. One of the indications that the end is coming. The end is coming. Events in Israel uh, likewise indicate the approach of that great day. For Israel's back in her own land. The Lord said that Israel would be trampled down by the Gentiles until the end. Well, Israel's back, not in all of her land. And there's still many Gentiles that, that give her a lot of trouble, as you know. But nevertheless, she's back in her own land. And there is such a place as, the, as Israel. Fifty years there's been a place. More than fifty years there's been a place uh, now called Israel. In fact, it's sixty years and more. A place called Israel. You could have looked the maps of the world up until 1948 and there was no Israel. Now there is. And this is what God said in Ezekiel. He would bring her back into the land. He would bring her back into the land. And I believe that's an indication that the time of the, Zion, of, of the Redeemer to return to Zion is drawing near. And that leads me on nicely to the final point. Consider the blessed consequences of the Redeemer's return. We've thought about him being away. He's been away. We've, we've thought about this indication of what it is will mark his return. And now look at what the verse says regarding what will follow his return to Zion. And the Redeemer shall come to Zion, and unto them that turn from transgression in Jacob, saith the Lord. You see, Paul renders these words in Romans chapter 11 and the verse 26 slightly differently from what Isaiah puts here. As it is written, he says, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now, there's no conflict between what we read in Isaiah and what we read Paul saying Isaiah said in Romans chapter 11 and the verse 26. But rather, the, the, the two verses complement each other. The meaning is this, that the Redeemer will return to Zion and as a result will bring about the conversion of Israel and there will be a turning away of many from their sins as a result of him coming to Zion. He's going to spiritually redeem his people. Now in other prophecies we are given very clear pictures of this taking place. It's the sight, the view of Christ returning that will bring about conversion. The conversion of the Jew. That's what's going to convert the Jew. That's what's going, that's what converted you. Your eyes were opened to behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. You were blind. 
You were blind to Jesus, blind to his beauty, blind to his power, blind to his love and his mercy, his grace, his good. You were blind to it all. Then God opened your eyes. When the Lord Jesus came to Israel the first time, they knew him not. They were blind to him. They were blind to him. Isaiah chapter 53 speaks of the blindness of him. They saw no beauty in him that would cause them to embrace him. No. But the, their eyes are going to be open. And you read about it in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 12. Oh, I love, I love Zechariah. I love those chapters either side of, of, of chapter 12. And chapter 12 of the verse 9 we read, <clears throat> And this is the Savior speaking. It shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The Savior will not only redeem Israel from the forces of Antichrist and deliver them in that sense, but he will deliver them from their sins that is coming. Paul the Apostle spoke of himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 8 as one that was born out of due time. You remember that? He was speaking of himself, and he says, you know, I was one that was born out of due time. He was speaking of all those who had seen the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. And he named them all, the apostles and the the great crowd, the, the 500, and then he says, last of all, me. As one that was born out of due season. When, when, we, when we read that, perhaps we think that what Paul was saying, I was born out of due season, in that I was sort of late born. I was late born. I was the last to be brought to this experience. And I was born out of due season in that I was late. But he wasn't saying that. He wasn't saying that. He was saying, I was born out of due season because I'm one of the first of the future harvest of Jews that will be born as a result of seeing Jesus. On the road to Damascus, Tarsus saw the Lord Jesus. He wasn't the last of the group that had, had that privilege. No, he was the first of a future group. See, that's what's going to happen to you. They're going to see him. Revelation. That wee book has come up a lot this, <laughs> in this meeting. You really think I was advertising that book and, and supporting what Mr. Toms was saying, but I'm not. <clears throat> I had intended saying that before I heard the advertisement. No, look at Revelation. In the first chapter of Revelation. And, and there you will read where John uh, mentions this this very thing. It's verse 7. Speaking of Christ, he says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. That's the Lord Jesus. In his second coming. The clouds indicate that. And every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him. Now that tells us who he's talking about. 
they who pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wheel because of him. The Jews will see the Lord coming. I, I don't believe that the only ones that will see him when he comes in glory. But their seeing of him will result in their conversion. It's a saving revelation they're given. A saving revelation that they are given of the Lord Jesus when he comes again. They shall see him. They shall see him. Oh, how glorious is that, is that truth. It's interesting to notice here just what conversion entails. There are those who foolishly think that what the Lord will do in a future time uh, by way of grace is different from what he does now. Well, don't you believe that? The ways of God never change. The covenant of grace doesn't change. The means of redemption doesn't change. When the Lord Jesus comes again to Zion and shall reveal himself to the Jew and will bring about their conversion, what will happen is that they shall be turned from transgressions. That's what conversion is. Oh, we have conversions today that doesn't entail that. False conversions. You don't have to give up your drinking or your cinema going or your dancing or your, your ungodly company or anything like that. You can still do all these things and now call yourself a Christian. And that's not the conversion that Christ teaches in his word, nor the conversion that he will work in that glorious time when he comes. So all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away on godliness from Jacob. Romans chapter 11, the verse 26, the commentary on the text that we have before us. He's going to turn men away from sin and ungodliness that he converts. And that's his will still. That's his will for you. You're young tonight. If you're young tonight, God's will for you is holiness. Be ye holy as I am holy. That's God's will. And that's the will that he will work out amongst those in Zion who will be converted, even the Jew, when he comes again. Acts chapter 3, the verse 26. Peter preaches in that very place, he says, Unto you first God. He's talking to the Jew. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. I was saying last night in a meeting that it'll soon be 45 years ago that I was converted. April 1964. And God, in his wonderful mercy, turned me away from iniquity. Oh, what a blessing it is to be turned from sin. Sin made me a wretched person. Unhappy. Miserable. And any time I have ever succumbed to it since, it has brought unhappiness with it. Holiness brings happiness. Holiness brings happiness. That's why the country is wretched today. That's why it's up to its, its eyebrows and drugs and drink and every form of, 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 of indulgence of the flesh in order to seek some measure of pleasure and joy. Because it's dying in misery. Because of sin. Only holiness brings you happiness. That's why Jesus turns men from sin. And that's what he's going to do when he comes to Zion. We as Christians should learn 
the lesson of the need of holiness if we are going to enjoy fellowship with Christ. The church, if it's ever going to know God's blessing again, is going to have to know what it is to turn from sin if we are to follow the Lord Jesus. I like the blind man, you know. When he was told, the master calls for thee, he took off the old beggar's garment, that filthy old garment. He knew it was filthy. What other state would it be in? He was blind. When it was soiled, he couldn't see it. He couldn't, he couldn't see the stains in order to, to, to wash them out or to keep himself clean. He didn't know, but he, that is, through his eyes he didn't know, but he knew, he knew he could feel the old tacky garment, he could smell it, he knew it was He didn't want to go into the presence of the Lord wearing it, so he threw it off. And when the Lord gave him the sight, it says, he followed Jesus in the way. He didn't go back to his occupation and sit by the roadside. No more sitting by the roadside. He was now a new creature. And he followed Jesus. He got his eyes on the Savior. If you were blind your lifetime, and suddenly you were given your sight, what would you do with it? What's the first thing you'd like to see? Where's the first place you'd like to go to? That man had only one thought. I want to look on Jesus. So that's what he engaged this new and wonderful power that had been given to him in looking on Jesus. Oh, that's what we need today if we're going to enjoy the Lord. We need to throw off the old garments that are stained by sin and walk in uprightness and, and, and holiness. The sanctifying power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is emphasized in this, in this verse. When Christ comes, he's going to redeem those in Zion and turn them from their sin. The day and hour, men and women, we see amongst the ranks of the professing church, the day and hour we see a turning from sin, from worldliness, from carelessness, from prayerlessness, from indifference, from half-heartedness. From silence, from, from mealy-mouthedness in the face of the opposition of the enemy. When we see all that being cast aside, then we know the Lord has come amongst us again. And he's working his grace in our midst. What a glorious day for the Jew. We're happy for them. We long for that day for their sake. But we take heart too and we pray that he who turns men from their sins would come again amongst his people and work and in turning us from our sins make us mighty thrashing instruments in the cause of winning sinners for Christ. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts.